Podcast ain't played nobody. Bill, I thought things were supposed to get smarter when we actually had football to talk about. I thought the content was going to be rich and varied. I thought we were going to examine the specificities of this fine sport and get away from the stupid things that people fill radio time with in March. And uh, apparently the, the Southeastern Conference is dead. Yeah, I have no idea why you would have thought that. Uh, I don't think we have any evidence on our side. Uh, Week one is when we reach drastic, concrete conclusions about everything. Um, And then 98% of those conclusions are proven wrong a month later. But this, you know, this is the SEC's dead. Texas is a playoff contender. Um, Houston's as good as in the playoff already. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, let's just cancel the season. We already know. Oklahoma has absolutely no hope now. Right. Because in, in recorded history, Oklahoma has never sustained an early season loss and then made it back into title contention. Yep, or they did that yep. last year. Yeah, they're toast. So, um, you know, and pretty much, you know, we, we've learned everything we're going to learn, so we might as well uh, react accordingly. How was your weekend, uh, Godfrey? It was good. I was in Houston, Texas. I got to see a very fine football game. I would rank it as probably the number three most entertaining. Maybe number two. I'll say number two. Um if only because I think Texas Notre Dame was certainly the most watchable affair. The biggest problem with Florida State and Ole Miss was that a good portion of it felt like, well, let me back up. A good portion of it looked like a fait accompli as Ole Miss ran the score up in the second quarter. Um, I, having some experience with Ole Miss, knew a certain inevitability would wash over the Rebels. It's called not having a run game. And... I think a lot of people may have checked out. I think people get fatigued, too, after a three-day weekend in general, yeah. the more casual football fan. So I don't know if that one was as fun, although it's always fun to watch a comeback. And I think as efficient and brutal a comeback as it was for Florida State and just that they were so exacting, forcing three and outs, forcing turnovers, and then scoring on every opportunity after, um, I don't know if that was as casually fun as... Notre Dame and Texas because it was as if they saw the kick six um from the Oklahoma Houston game or is it not kick six yeah kick six from the Oklahoma Houston game and then decided they had to one-up it with a with a see a go-ahead touchdown that turned into a tie game when this is uh off their their point after so uh, I I think it just in terms of like having a beer and chilling out that was the most exciting game but I saw a good game at Oklahoma Houston I am working on a piece about Houston's um, inevitable question mark uh, entry into the Big 12 Conference um, that will probably wrap up when they face Cincinnati in Week 3. So I've been working on that. Um, I have been trying, Bill, to manufacture some content for this week to try and convince human beings that there's a college football Week 2. It hasn't gone well. Uh, We do have a video going up this week that we shot last month at Bristol Motor Speedway about the construction of the field and the like repurposing of Bristol Motor Speedway for the battle at Bristol, Tennessee, and Virginia Tech, obviously. Um, please go watch that. It's on the Facebooks. It's on the Twitters. Um, I've, I've dipped a toe into some video stuff this year. And by dipped a toe, what that means is if you see someone talking in the video, Bill, they're talking to me. I'm not on camera. Uh, you don't hear my questions. And then Adam Porter, who, uh, one of our insanely talented video guys, shoots everything, makes it look awesome, like a vid- like a you know like a, uh, a popcorn movie trailer, like big you know blockbuster, awesome looking thing. And then he edits everything. So I do very little, but I'm there when it happens. Kind of like this podcast. Your aura, your aura is present, uh, and everybody who watches the video will know it. 
the biggest thing my aura did was explain to Frank Beamer what SB Nation was, like, and the website and the whole concept of that, which was, which honestly, for about three and a half minutes, was yeoman's work. Um, so, yeah, trying to, I talked to the um, athletic director at Virginia Tech yesterday with Babcock. Um, by the way, I think this is a dumb stat, doesn't really matter for this show, but I think they were telling me this laughingly yesterday. So, I don't know if anyone's done this, but the average age of an AD, a head basketball coach, and a head football coach, Virginia Tech might be the youngest in the entire nation uh, now that Frank Beamer is gone and Justin Fuente's in there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm not trying to, like, hell, I don't. I, I own exactly zero dollars of ESPN Disney stock, but I, I, I'm not trying to, like, artificially pump up that game, but based on what we did see... I think it, there's more of a puncher's chance for Virginia Tech than we might have thought a month ago. So that's somewhere we can start talking about week two. Other than that, I mean, it's really... We're going to try and be forward-facing this season on each one of the podcasts, but it's just... It's really hard to talk about this week given some of the quality content that we got last week. Yeah, and, you know, there will be craziness. There will be fun games and everything. It's just, yeah, it's some weeks it's kind of harder to see in advance. And, and I mean, I will say this. Friday night, Louisville, Syracuse. Um, like Syracuse, clearly, uh, as they showed last week, I mean, I, we're not going to see a uh, fully formed version of Dino Baber's offense just yet. Uh, but they could be. They should be more fun to watch this year. And Louisville is very fun to watch this year. So even if Louisville wins pretty easily, that'll be pretty fun. Um, you know, Central Michigan, uh, Oklahoma State didn't get tested last week. Central Michigan should at least a little bit. Uh, Akron will probably beat Wisconsin just because and Western Kentucky it'll be kind of a fun little race against the clock like how long how long can Western Kentucky keep things interesting um, yeah, you know they, they are very very dangerous for that for for a Conference USA team they are going to be one of the best mid-majors this year uh, but Alabama is absurd um, yeah and, yeah. and really, I mean, then you get into, like, I think the headliners, I mean, Virginia Tech, Tennessee, yeah, but, I mean, Arkansas, TCU, there, there's a lot going on there. Uh, that, and obviously it's only one ranked team, you know, TCU's 15th, and kind of after their defensive showing last week, kind of lucky to be 15th, uh, and, and Arkansas's unranked. So it doesn't, you know, jump off the page, but that one has a lot going on for it, uh, and that'll be a fun game to watch. And, of course, El Asico. Look, I can, I mean, I just pulled up the, the, the greatest – by the way, the greatest week-to-week schedule every week is not an Espionation property. It is www.lsufootball.net. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who they are or why they do the wonderful things they do, but they do it. Um, we can find some PAPN-centric material, no doubt. You give us football, we're going to cook you dinner with it. But, whew, um, I would be curious how many points Western Kentucky scores at Alabama. Yep. I would be curious. Uh, you know what? I'd be curious how many points Utah State scores at USC. Um, this is going to be a lot of ums on this show. Idaho. I, I'm curious how bad. I, we, we, we may see a 70-point differential in the Idaho-Washington game. Um, I tell you what, kind of sleepy, maybe not. Arkansas State at Auburn. No. Uh, yeah. Well, possibly. If I if I, I, if I, if I lay that at your feet, are you going to have any interest in that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always enjoy Arkansas State. Uh, they right. were unimpressive against Toledo. That or Toledo is really good. Um, you know, that, and that's kind of that right there is why it's it's so hard to conclude anything after week one. It's like, well, maybe they're good, or maybe the other team's bad. 
Um, they got they got blitzed at home by Toledo and Auburn. Auburn, I just have no freaking idea now what to think about them because their defense actually looked good repeatedly, and their offense had no, like no, not even a slight bit of of, of uh, stability. I was helping SB Nation video kind of yesterday, just kind of trying to lay out like you know, okay, so um, Brent Venables googled. Uh, how to stop the wing T because he, he got, you know, a tip or whatever that they're going to maybe be breaking that out. So I went back and watched some of that game just from a pure formation standpoint. It was hilarious. I mean, it was the malls on offense with like with zone reads and lots and lots of motion. And they motioned into every single possible iteration of every single weird formation they could possibly think of with a different quarterback on every damn play. And um, I mean, I guess, when you're facing Clemson and you're probably not going to be able to control the line of scrimmage at all, maybe that's a smart idea just because it keeps them off guard, but they weren't off guard at all. I mean, they, 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 they manhandled Auburn's offense repeatedly. And, and that's a shame because Auburn's defense gave them a shot to win. Uh, Debo Swinney's math at the end of the game gave them a shot to win, uh, but they just could not do anything offensively. What if I told you Texas Tech is playing at Arizona state? That one's going to be fun. Um, I mean, number one, I mean, Tech, uh, you know, if they ever figure out how to put a top 50 defense on the field and your boy is in charge there. Um, Who knows how much shit you talk. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a while, but I, I definitely let him know when I can. Um, it's pretty bad. Um, but, that, we, but, I mean, the bottom line, like that game in Louisville-Syracuse, there are a lot of games where just wacky things should happen, and that, that will, that will uh, you know, quench our appetite but yeah, in terms of consequence, we went from like a ten out of ten last week to about a two out of ten. So uh, low key intriguing and low key weird wacky, the Holy War. Yeah, BYU yeah, Utah. I, I mean, it's yeah. going to be uh, that'll be if it's a six thirty central kick, so it'll be five thirty. You know, you, you'll be going into the evening there uh, in Salt Lake City. There, there is potential in this schedule. Um, I think it's just an inevitability now that if you line up 15 games of any worth it, or, or varying worth, no worth, you're still going to have a level of watchability come out. Yeah. The sport is just going to lend itself to madness at a certain right. point. It's, just, it's, a weird, chaos theory. it's a weird sport uh, with overthinky coaches and 18 to 22-year-old males uh, and a pointy ball. So there's always going to be weirdness. Uh, it's just, yeah. I mean, Washington State, Boise State could technically be interesting. Cal, San Diego State. Actually, I'm really curious about that one because the Aztecs might actually be really good, and and Cal. Yeah, we talked really about that on our on our inaugural rebranding of the box score yeah. examination, which I haven't come up with a fun wacky game show name for yet. But um, that game becomes more of a yardstick for us trying to understand Cal than Hawaii probably was, and with all the extenuating circumstances of travel and date and time and location, all that junk on Australia. So there's something to be said about that. Um. Penn State-Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah. I can talk about this from an educated standpoint, having spent a lot of time with the Penn State guys and having uh, having looked at the recruiting on the, not just not just Western Pennsylvania, but kind of everything from Happy Valley West. Um, this game is a really, 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 really big deal in that it could kind of help crown Pat Narduzzi and bring Pittsburgh into a conversation. We talked about this a lot in the offseason, that the ACC doesn't have a second class. Um, maybe this helps Pittsburgh plant a flag in, in, as, a, as a true second class, kind of anything other than Florida State Clemson right now. 
the league certainly needs that. They need the Pittsburgh, Virginia Tech, Miami, kind of, you know, Louisville. Yes, sorry, thank you. Yeah, they only beat Charlotte by 100, so. Um, well, by the way, just to detour off that, when are we going to know if Louisville's really good? Do we have to wait till Florida State? Is there anything against Syracuse that this this week that they do that we can t- kind of pull away and say, okay, I guess well, if, if if they keep them under twenty, that I think that in the Carrier Dome that matters. Yeah, I mean if they if they manhandle Syracuse, that's a very good sign. I mean I, I do think Syracuse is at least going to have some interesting things to offer this year, and so if they go in there and they win by twenty one or something, that's a very good sign. But. Um, but, I mean, in terms of, like, not learning anything before Florida State, I mean, Florida State's next week, so we don't have to wait that long to learn anything. Um, and then two weeks after that, is Cle- they go to Clemson. So we'll kind of, by, by mid-October, we'll know what we need to know about Louisville, and then they'll have a bunch of potential wins on the schedule heading into Houston. Um, Duke, NC State, Virginia on the road, Boston College on the road. So, um, mm, I mean, that, <laughs> So, I mean, that's a... Yeah, we don't have to wait too long. We we might not learn much this week. Let's see. I have them projected to win by eight over Syracuse. So if they win by twenty, that that says good things. We just have to yeah you know wait one more week maybe to to learn a lot more. By the way, yes, um, we're talking about how terrible this week is. We just came up with like ten pretty yeah, interesting games. Yeah, no. oh, and the reason I brought that okay, so Penn State like this is a must win game for a for a large program in the Big Ten. Yeah, um, you know, I think I put this on the record. If not, I don't think. I mean, I know it was. It came out on the record, but Franklin has said before to me that, you know, it, regardless of whether you're trying to create this as a rivalry or whatever it might be for for particular fan bases, when you talk about Pittsburgh, when you talk about Temple, when you talk about these schools, uh, you know, they benefit directly from when Penn State is down. You know, the recruiting rivals of Penn State need Penn State to be down or fair to middling for them to thrive and. You know, consequently, I think the Penn State, um, uh, yeah, I was going to, <laughs> Illuminati, I was going to laugh and say it and say I shouldn't. Yeah, but yeah, the Penn State Illuminati, not only do they want a progression in wins this year specifically, so I think eight is the, is the desired demanded number. I think they have to beat uh, Temple, and they absolutely have to beat Pittsburgh. They have to cut this Pittsburgh thing off because they lost some key guys to them in recruiting, and that doesn't sit well. So, um, this is all non-football. I, I wasn't really blown away by what I saw from Penn State coming out against Kent State last week. They did what they had to. It still doesn't look like it's going to, you know, bl- blossom overnight into an experienced high-scoring offense, even though they've completely changed everything, although they have changed everything. It's only been one game. Uh, it, 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 there's a lot of intriguing stuff here. I'll put it that way. And also, yeah. Penn State's new defense kind of got pushed around a little bit early. So Early, yeah. I mean, they 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 were fine overall, you know. Kent had like four yards per play. That was that really wasn't problematic to me at all. The problem was that Penn State only had five yards per play. And uh, uh, all right, tell me about my one to know Wyoming Cowboys going going into Lincoln. <laughs> going into Lincoln, coming off of a rousing overtime win that ended at four like in the four. Morning. Yeah. <laughs> Did you wake up and see that? Uh, well, I saw them tweeting about it when I got up that that next morning. Okay, so it, it wasn't actually going on when you when you when you no. woke up. Well, no, it was a Sunday, so therefore I I, I sleep in till about six on Sundays. Um, oh, okay, weirdo. Uh, Cincinnati has an opportunity to completely erase a terrible, terrible Thursday night opener. They 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 finally they rallied. I will say that they, they ra- yeah they rallied to beat UT Martin. They have a chance to erase that by beating Purdue and uh, you know. Hey, Purdue beat a pretty decent Eastern Kentucky team. Decent. Would, would not, not pretty be, decent. 
would not we'll be say, shocked, but would not be shocked if a Cincinnati win here would would start the domino effect on early coaching changes. That was one of the things I asked Whit Babcock uh, yesterday, and I think that piece will be up on Thursday, maybe Friday on SB Nation. Last year, Steve Spurrier's retirement really set everything in motion for a very different kind of hiring season, and he talked to me about Beamer recognizing that, knowing that he was done. And going and talking to Witt about this and then saying, hey, we have to make this public now. And I think it was like with four games left in the season, maybe five, maybe going into four games. And how how amazing that was for Virginia Tech to have Beamer show that presence of mind because they couldn't really operate off the radar because when you go out and you talk to people, um, although they did, I'll get to that in a second, but... You can't really do that and it not get kicked back up into the media. And then how does that look if you're doing that to Frank Beamer, who built your program, who's been there for decades, et cetera, et cetera. But by by announcing it early, it allowed Virginia Tech to work in a much more public space. Um, The reason why they were so quiet with the Fuente hiring comes from a lot of different reasons. One, Babcock is a very quiet person. He he doesn't – he's not an AD who's going to go with – he's just not a flashy guy. Um, and then Fuente is sort of the antithesis of Flash in terms of his personality and dynamic. Um, and also, they approached Fuente right up front, and they and Fuente's team kind of ex- expressed a mutual interest right up front. And so they were able to quietly work without having to go out and kind of troll through the you know the stock of available candidates or get into bidding wars or play t- you know teams and schools and coaches and all that stuff against each other. They just kind of found each other very quickly in the process and, you know, got married right out of high school. I'll put it that way. Um, so this year, maybe it's Purdue that starts, but a lot of people are telling me off the record right now that they expect this trend to continue. So Tracy Kleiss is on like an interim deal. Basically, I know he's not an interim anymore, but his contract would tell you that he is at Minnesota. Purdue, maybe they falter early and finally get rid of Hazel. Maybe it's Minnesota. You know, maybe it's, I don't think it's going to be LSU, at least not like before Halloween. Um, somebody is going to set that trend in motion. Looking at you, Kentucky, although that would be a very expensive buyout at this point. Um, yeah. And then we're going, I think we're going to see, this is what I'm trying to get at. I think we're going to see this pattern emerge from here on out where coaching candidacy and the whole cycle, instead of starting around Thanksgiving, is going to be already in motion by Halloween every year. I think A, I hate that, and B, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, Well, I think everybody hates it. Nobody wants to be doing that with six games left in a season. Right. It's awful kind of on every level because not only are you breaking up the psyche of your current team under an an interim, if you fired a guy or if they retired or whatever it is, you're also screwing with other teams. And believe it or not, a lot of ADs don't like doing that because it's not so much the moral – Objection of oh you know these kids are student athletes and we don't want to inter- no <laughs> no it's more be that. it's more just like they don't want to create a wake of problems that's going to come back and wash over them years later on some other at some other position some other job you know your reputation is all you have and a lot of people don't want to be that boisterous about their coaching searches and they kind of have to also maybe West Virginia although just beat an SEC team. Well, and I mean, they look pretty good. I will say that. I mean, I've got plenty of plenty of things to say about Missouri, good and bad. But I will say West Virginia looked um, composed and smart, and they knew exactly what they wanted to do on offense. They were able to. We'll see, I mean, Missouri fans are freaking out about the the state of the defensive line. They didn't look very good, but West, I think West Virginia had a role to play in that. So um, he, yeah, 
first thing, I mean, again, we only know mites at this point, but I was impressed with West Virginia, so they might be okay. I got a couple emails and a couple tweets about is uh, is the Anxiety Bowl still Texas A and M Auburn, even though Texas A and M beat UCLA. A lot of people were asking about LSU and Mississippi State. Uh, the reason why I personally think you can't transfer that over is because even if Mississippi State is two and ten this year, that you there isn't really a world that exists in which you fire Dan Mullen from Mississippi State this year. Yeah, that would unless be pretty... it's for a cause unrelated to football performance. <laughs> so. Whereas Texas A and M, Auburn, and now LSU are in different different circumstances. Yeah, so, no, it's still A and M. Yeah, I'll keep I'll keep the anxiety bowl status. Um, I mean, my gosh, imagine if Arkansas State even just puts a healthy scare into Auburn. That how bad, how tight they're going to have to play in those games. So yeah, and I will. Uh, this isn't. This is going to be a very very meager defensive Mississippi State. Uh, if you're going to suffer an early season upset like that. Have it be like Mississippi State did, where you just, where you break out to a big lead and just fall asleep. That's not yeah. good. <laughs> no, uh, but it's still better than just being pushed around from the very start. Um, they went out what seventeen nothing, I think. Uh, I stopped paying attention to it when it was seventeen nothing, and they did too, apparently. And South Alabama, it was able to claw back in, and then you know Mississippi State was flat footed and all that. None of that's good, uh, but I don't think that is in, is as indicative of. Say Virginia <laughs> getting pushed around from the opening kickoff against Richmond, uh, that was that was bad, and uh, so I'm going to give I'm at least going to give Mississippi State this week against South Carolina before I deem them terrible. So, you know, that's, that's I would actually extend the same logic to Oxford in that they oh I, yeah not, oh yeah they were not the better team they were probably not supposed to win that game in the ethereal who's supposed to win plane of you know existential prognostication, but. Um, Ole Miss came out and was extremely effective on offense. I thought their offensive line, it was so weird to see those two teams almost switch offensive line calamities by half. Um, they acquitted themselves really well. I just think it's a deeper, better coach team with more consistency in terms of not only talent, but coaching and also adjustments. And yeah, one it's... team, one team was able to adjust and find their run game, which they, which they're built they're sort of built on. That's the chassis in which that you install a true freshman on. And the other team Ole Miss has kind of always been smoke and mirrors with the run game under Hugh Freeze for a variety of reasons, and then they lost a running back to an ACL injury. Yeah, and I, I really thought they should have run more because they didn't do a terrible job of it when they did it. It was just, I think, almost that you know Kelly's early success kind of baited them a little bit um, into kind of forgetting about it. Like, well, we're just going to ride Chad Kelly's arm here. That and the game turned so quickly. Like six minutes, they went from up 22 to down one. Um, and I think that... They maybe got caught up. And, you know, the bottom line with Ole Miss is, too, that part of the draw, like part part of what they do well is that they are loose and kind of volatile and unstable. Um, you know, that that's what that's one of the things I think that has allowed them to beat Alabama the last couple of years. They, they're going to play loose. They're going to take chances. They're going to be aggressive and all these things that uh, can work out beautifully. But when it doesn't work, uh, the tables turn really quickly. And just the talent level that they have has assured that they only lose – you know, three or four games uh, these last couple of years, as opposed to a ton. And, and honestly, I saw, I mean, I saw a lot of talent on the field the other day, so they should be fine again this year. But um, yeah, I, I think they got kind of caught up. I, I don't remember what it was, but um, what's his name? Judd. I, he was actually, Judd, yeah. yeah, he was actually running the ball pretty well when they gave him a chance to, they just, uh, those, I think the tables turned so, so quickly that they just kind of lost sight of it. What did he have here? He had, yeah, I mean, he had eight for 44 uh, and then, the two other running backs, Swinney and Brasley, uh, combined for three for nine. So they, their running backs rushed uh, 11 times. 
uh, and they were up 22 points at one point, and their, their running backs rushed 11 times. That's Part of that could have been because they knew they were facing Florida State's de- defensive front, uh, but it, it lent to predictability, and, and Kelly in the second half just had a miserable time. He was getting sacked a ton. His receivers kept dropping passes, which they kind of did in the first half too. Uh, Adebojo dropped a couple in the first half. Um, but Adebojo, uh, yeah. not really, not, never going to be a number one. Um, they recruited really well and have two great freshman receivers, but they're freshman receivers. Yeah, um, yeah all this was just – and, of it's, course, it, I get more in my echo chamber from Ole Miss than anywhere else for obvious reasons. And my message to Ole Miss fans on Monday night was, if you would have showed me the final score, I would have said, yeah, absolutely, that made total sense. If you, The disparity and the comeback and all that, obviously that's the newsworthy bit of it. But it's all about what I expected. Yeah, I mean, I – I my my thought of Ole Miss as a potential top ten or twelve team was absolutely backed up by what I saw. It's just yeah. Florida Florida State's a potential playoff team, and that was the difference. Yeah. And and this is a space in which all the programs that we saw, with the exception of Houston, and Houston is still very much a unique. It, it's an isolated situation in nothing but they're they're in nothing but a climb right now. They've beaten Florida State. They've won the American Athletic Conference. They just beat Oklahoma. So, so they're in a completely unique rocket ship scenario. And every other team that was in sort of a prominent Power 5 uh, marquee matchup, even, even, even more so North Carolina than Ole Miss against Georgia and the, P- and the Chick-fil-A, whatever. Ole Miss is not used to being in these circumstances. And losing a game like this feels more devastating than it should probably to a program that's just not – I mean – I think I said it on this show a couple years ago. They were asked to back out of the Chick-fil-A kickoff game because they were so bad. This is what happens when you play these games. Notre Dame fans are not – I mean, some Notre Dame fans are, are you know thinking the world's over right now because of the quarterback situation. But for the most part, it's – this is just sort of how you operate. Even I think even Florida State, had they lost the game, there are programs that know these are the circumstances and the stakes in which you have at this level, and then there are programs who just aren't used to it. So – um, I thought it was kind of exactly what I expected. Francois is a badass, no doubt. I don't, I don't want right. to take anything. That that kid, it was. He he got he got overwhelmed for a little bit in the second quarter when yeah. the line wasn't doing it. I, I liked what Jimbo said at halftime. Going into halftime was basically, yeah, he's fine, he's fine. We just got everybody, need everybody else to help him. And so they went in and they they kind of worked in. They they reminded him that he could run. Um, I think that was, he was trying really hard to stay in the pocket and they said, Hey, you know, don't be stupid about it. You know, if they're coming in on you, just rush the upfield. And that worked, I think three times in the second half. Um, a lot of short passing Dalvin cook had, you know, they did a good job of stopping him out of the backfield, uh, on the ground, but then, you know, he caught like, you know, hundred, whatever yards worth of passes. Um, so no, they just, they adjusted Florida State knows what it's doing. And, um, you know, they, they were really close to being spectacular last year, and they might have just found some more upside at the quarterback position. And by the way, uh, we're jumping all around here, but that's what we do. Um, Houston, I've been putting together something for Houston myself for, the, for later this week, probably tomorrow. You can't have enough Houston content right now. Right. I wanted to ask um, you, I saw this and I don't even understand, what the hell happened to Oklahoma's running game? Well, part of it was that they gave up on it. Um, I mean, Mixon and P. Ryan had 12 carries for 71 yards. That's, I mean, that's six yards a carry. That's pretty good. Um, now, granted, I mean, Mixon had a 32-yarder. P. Ryan had a 15-yarder. So it wasn't incredibly efficient, but there was still something there. It's, I, I think it was kind of the same deal with, Ole Miss, with Oklahoma as it was for Ole Miss. The game turned fast. Um, it was 17-16 OU uh, right before the last play of half. 
Uh, and then, you know, they get the field goal. They come out and they get the, uh, you know, it, it's 1917. OU's trying to uh, take the lead, and suddenly they're down nine uh, because of that kick six. I, I mean, that, that flipped things around massively. Instead of having the lead, you're down two possessions, and then Houston goes down and scores again. I think the game turned on them really, really quickly. You know, P. Ryan got hurt in the first half, and so then maybe they were leaning all against the run because of that to begin with. Um, yeah, I just you know, sometimes with those quick swings can can really take you out of whatever you were intending to do. But that was a really, I mean, that was kind of a, in a lot of ways that was a prototype OU loss, and it was a prototype Houston win in that they, uh, you know, they were down with uh, four seconds left in the first half, and then uh, very early in the second half they're up nine. Uh, just a really quick flip. Special teams got involved. And it allowed them to basically take a game that statistically was almost dead even. Like, um, OU had 6.6 yards per play to Houston's 5.1, which is, you know, freaking Houston, figuring out ways to break my numbers repeatedly. Um, but they were able to generate success, I think, on third. Yeah, they were 9 for 17 on third down. Uh, and they just, they have mastered the art of just those bursts that uh, build like that build them a lead when maybe they otherwise uh, hadn't earned one. They're so good at that. And, and you know, it, it led me – I'm trying to figure out how to – it's a tricky piece for me to write because I say Houston, everybody immediately thinks I'm going to put my stat hat on. I, I, I'm fascinated by Houston. I love the way, like, it, it almost – the way they win games almost gets me, me uh, the quote-unquote stat person, going down the road of, like, intangibles and whatnot um, – but and so I'm trying to mix those two worlds together, and here's the best thing I can come up with for Houston in terms of they might be lucky and they might just be more well coached than anybody else in the country. So on the stat profiles that I post weekly during the season, we should have uh, later today the the week one profiles should be up mm-hmm. uh, in the in the results section. I have kind of your your results, and then I've got uh, the the kind of the projected margin of uh, scoring margin for that game, and that's based on all the things that I collect in terms of you know success rate and explosiveness and field position, all these things. It'll basically say, um, you know, with all of these factors, with all of these key stats, you could have expected to win this game X percent of the time, and on average by X points. That's what adjusted scoring margin is. So um, Houston and Oklahoma. The Houston's win expectancy was exactly 50%, and the adjusted scoring margin was minus 0.1. So, A, awesome. That means they're not going to really rise all that much for, because of this game, which sucks for me personally because I'm going to get yelled at a lot more. Um, but there, B, are like, I, there are 10. I've had to block four Houston fans, of all people. I, and I hate it when sports writers complain about who yells at them. But I, I only bring it up because of how damn weird that is, how much – ass we kiss at Houston and how many freaking awesome features we've done on them and but yeah. for, for some reason I don't, I don't know is it is it inexperience being on a national stage but <laughs> there's like 15 Houston fans online I want to hit with a car so um I mean yeah I, I posted my I, I had to take a deep breath before posting my rankings yesterday because I already knew what the reaction was going to be and I was right um, they, I mean, they basically, A, because most of the rankings are still preseason projections because, believe it or not, we can't glean a whole lot from week one. Uh, they basically stayed right where they were in the 40s as opposed to moving up, and, of course, I got yelled at. But basically, here's the dilemma with Houston. So that margin, they were, you know, on average, it was minus 0.1. They won by 10. So they basically, quote-unquote, overachieved by 10 points. So I looked at last year's averages. Uh, basically, like, you know, this is – 
I mean, on, on average, it's a pretty good way of looking at things. And, and so if you look at just full season averages for last year, um, on average, Oklahoma overachieved by 4.9 points per game last year in terms of, you know, what the that projected margin showed versus what they actually did. They were second in the country at 4.9. Houston was first in the country with 7.5. Like they 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 overachieved that projected margin by two point by by seven and a half points per game, a touchdown per game, uh, and they were two point six points better at that than anybody else in the country. Like the range is is basically five to minus five per game. Uh, the only team that worse than five points per game on the bottom on, on the underachieving side was Boston College at six. They underachieved their their margin by six points per game last year, which kind of makes sense. Uh, Michigan was actually third worst in that regard. They were minus five points per game. Houston broke the scale. They were seven and a half point overachievers uh, on average last year. Um, and so, of course, then a Houston fan will respond with, um, you know, flawed formula, flawed, flawed, flawed metric. And I, I mean, maybe I spent half this morning trying to figure out if there is a flaw in there. But really, they're just they're the one team that doesn't fit into the model. And um, part of that is absolutely luck, you know, just in terms of the number of fumbles they recovered, the number of um, interceptions the other team doesn't hold on to and the number of interceptions they do. There, there is a luck aspect in there. There absolutely is. Um, but a lot of teams get lucky in terms of turnovers. And uh, Houston just, like, they have, yeah, they, they've broken the scale. And I don't really know what to do about it. I'm not going to change a, a ton of things. It wouldn't change anything. Let's, let's ride this out if I were you. Yeah, it's I mean, team, it's an outlier. Well, right. I mean, clearly, but I'm, I am trying to figure out more of the explanation for it. And it's been really hard to come by. They just, they just overachieved by a touchdown per game. All the, all these metrics that I follow that, that lead to pretty good picks and, and a good assessment of everybody else. Uh, it says they're about a touchdown worse than they actually are. They consistently hit. I mean, they, their standard deviation, I, that was the other thing I looked at. Like Teams like Boise State were crazy uh, in terms of just week-to-week week, uh, being way above the margin one week and way below uh, in another. A lot of teams were crazy. They were one of the lowest standard deviations in the country. Like They were consistently eight points, seven to eight points better than average, and it was, it's just so Bill, weird. Bill, I've done some math. I think I know what the difference is. Swag, just pure yeah. swag, maybe. Yeah, you don't. Have I mean, a, you don't have a swag column on your table. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have a better uh, explanation for it at this point. Like, I, I did that overachiever underachiever thing over the summer, where I looked at like a similar thing, looking at that win expectancy, um, and and looking at coaches over time, and like you know, uh, some coaches like poor Steve, uh, poor uh, Dazio at Boston College, who I just said underachieved drastically last year. Uh, some coaches are consistently below average like he uh, Adazio uh, on average over five years as a head coach was about 0.9 wins per year from where he should have been that's pretty bad and on the flip side of that like Ken Niamatololo is is 1.1 wins ahead of where he should be each year uh but Bill Snyder is 0.9 Gus Malzahn's actually 0.9 um Tom Herman was like plus 2.5 last year. He, again, broke the scale. And it's one year, so, again, we'll see. Maybe this all comes crashing down on Houston. Um, but, you know, every time they actually win a game this way, it, it, it makes me less convinced that that's the case. So, um, Yeah, well, the good news is that most of those programs that you just named, with the exception of Kansas State, aren't really going to jump on your ass the same way that, uh, that we have to, uh, you know, deal with Houston fans. I don't think – if you're a BC <laughs> fan listening to this, just let me know you're alive. And, and yeah, if, if, if a Navy fan wants to jump us, 
Like, oh lord! Like that—that that would be even worse than Houston, I think. I think we've uh, we've proven our bona fides. Yeah, speaking of prognostication, somebody went to West Point, New York, and wrote a feature about a really formerly bad football team that beat Temple. So yeah. that's—I'm very curious about both Army and Temple now. I thought Temple would be solid. I, I really—I thought Army would be better, but not particularly good. So now we have to wait and see if that was like an option effect thing. Uh, if they just couldn't figure out that out, and now they'll go back to defending teams regularly pretty well. As uh, one but of our Temple, listeners on Twitter pointed out, Bill, I think it's a Godfrey feature effect because it, the last the last schools that I've profiled are Texas, Houston, and Army. So yeah, you're uh, you're hoping because you had, you had a run of the exact opposite before that. Well, actually, yeah. By the way, if you listen to this, please never never ever contact any of the schools that I embed with, or try or just never mention this if you think I'm going to embed with your school because. I've never actually embedded for with a team that won. Some people have pointed that out and noticed it before, but it, yeah, it's never happened. In fact, um, I'm trying to think of the team that I embedded with that even came close. Yeah, I, there were a couple. There were a couple. There were two that were a score. So, but most were just not good. Anyway, um, but that you know, I embedded with Western Kentucky when they played Alabama. The, the point was, you know, I didn't embed with them to see an upset. I'll put it that way. Bill, uh, where do you want to go? Do you want to talk about this SEC fallacy? Do you want to answer some reader mail? Do you want um, to talk about Notre Dame, Texas? Um, well, let's talk about SEC a little bit. Um, okay, it's real stupid. Uh, let me set the table before you before you dispense the knowledge. Um, obviously, the meme built because of the poor performance that started with what Tennessee. Yeah. I would say maybe the the just lackluster you know game between Vanderbilt and, and South Carolina didn't help, but then Tennessee comes out and looks particularly poor against Oklahoma, uh, Appalachian State. And then we get into the weekend. Uh, obviously, South Alabama beats Mississippi State. Southern Miss beats Kentucky. Um, I don't know really from there how you build that into combining like the circumstances of a Florida State Ole Miss or a Clemson-Auburn, but folks have. Also, the stat that came out the other day about I – I, I know who it is, but I'm not going to name names when I'm being this critical. Someone led their Monday morning column – you know, capital letters, my column, with the SEC loses seven games in week one. They counted the freaking Vanderbilt game. <laughs> of course they did. I mean, it's, oh, God. Um, th- there's so much stupid involved with this. But, Bill, before you get into explaining why it's painfully stupid, I also have to, like, jump on the other side for a second. Not from a, not from a numbers perspective. The, the narrative is false. This ship will right itself. And also, I'd like to remind you of one team that we have not discussed at all since this podcast started, and that's the team that is better than every other football team and really yeah. might be 10-6 and six in the NFC, okay? <laughs> Alabama is that much that much better than everyone else, okay? They are as good as it gets, and every year they change the definition of that. But the problem is, it's the same... All of this goes down the same weekend when the SEC Network unveils this new marketing campaign of It Just Means More. Where they have this, like, fake-ass Tanya Tucker, 1989-looking woman, like, wandering (laughs) wandering through these just awful freaking Birmingham Kia location-looking commercials of, like, pastoral crap and Jack Crystal calling a game from 20 years ago on the Vicksburg Bridge and, you know, uh, just some random person walking through the columns at Missouri. I, I was just, at, as usual, they looked at Missouri and they're like, we don't really know much about them yet. Just throw yeah. up a picture of their campus. Yeah. Um, this is disgusting and infuriating for everyone 
who cares about college football who doesn't come from the SEC. And I'll be interested in yours. As soon as I run out of breath, I will be. I'll be interested in your perspective because you did not, you, you, you did not exist in the SEC apparatus until a couple of years ago. But to say, fundamentally, the dumb argument exists because the SEC thing is shoved down everyone's throat. Right. You can't sit there as a smart fan and say, I can't believe people are saying this about the Southeastern Conference. You can believe it. It's because we all get tired of it. Because this idea that it, it matters more if you're a Mississippi State or South Carolina or even Auburn or Georgia or whatever fan is compared to somewhere like Oklahoma or Notre Dame or Texas or Florida State or Oregon or any of these schools that make college football what it is in addition to the Southeastern Conference is ridiculous. It's awful. And well, I, yeah. I can say this. I'm certified. I am from Georgia. <laughs> I went to Ole Miss. I live in Tennessee. I, I mean, I don't know what else I can give you. I'm as certified SEC as they come, and it makes me nauseous. All right, well, now, right, there's, explain, explain to everyone now why they're still the best conference in football. Well, I mean, because they are. But, like, there's, there's the – there are conferences on paper, and then there's the narrative. And, and the SEC – goes to great lengths to remind everybody how awesome they are. And when that happens, the, those people are going to gleefully rebel when they've got any sort of evidence uh, on their side. Uh, and and it, it's, and I, I mean, I get it. Like it, it was, uh, the, it means more stuff is, is pretty ridiculous. Like maybe on average, you know, the, the, the median, SEC program has more support or passion or whatever than the median what but blah 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 when you when you try that hard to remind everybody why you're the best uh, any evidence that you're not the best is going to be is going to come back at you twice as fast so yeah I mean they deserve when they have a week like this they just they absolutely deserve to uh, to have to eat the crow that they have to eat um, you know that said, they're still, you know, Alabama is the best team in the country right now. That could change. We don't know. But right now they were clearly and definitively the best team uh, in the country uh, in the first week. Like uh, Ohio State might only, might have the only other claim uh, and they only be Bowling Green and Bowling Green might end up being really bad. They looked spectacular and dominant too, but Alabama did it against USC. And I came away from that game much more impressed with Alabama than I was discouraged about USC, to be quite honest. Like, they, USC lost its heart there, like, uh, you know, beginning of the third quarter. But, of course, they did. They, right. uh, you know, after, you know, completing a deep ball early in the game for, for about the last quarter and a half of the first half, they had absolutely no idea how to move the ball. Uh, they tried a little bit of everything, and none of it even came close to working. So, of course, you're going to kind of lose. Now, I mean, stomping on the dude's crotch was – that's a completely different story, but – Anyway, Alabama was clearly uh, the best team. Always good, to hand, always good to hand a team like Alabama extra motivation. Clemson, yeah. Clemson um, in, in terms of returning personnel, is clearly one of the two best teams in the country. And Auburn had a Hail Mary shot, despite ridiculous quarterback shuffling and overthinking on offense. Auburn had a, a Hail Mary shot to beat them at the end of the game. That, and the that funny was, thing about that is, I think that speaks to the environment that is, that, that, you know, why we pump up the SEC. Because Clemson is clearly the better team, but yet still, what's the sports writer terminology? Escapes the planes with a win, right? Because <laughs> right. there is a base level of quality to some of these teams that are inherently flawed, which is very much Auburn in 2016. Clemson won. I, that's, it, 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 that's okay. That's kind of what was supposed to happen. Actually, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this. I'm going to start back at the beginning of the week and just basically go through each SEC team and talk about whether they were – they met expectations, exceeded them, or, or didn't. So okay. Tennessee didn't. Did not, but, but one. Right. 
South Carolina Vanderbilt is obviously a wash. I would say South Carolina did and Vanderbilt didn't, but Absolutely. that's a wash. No, I would say just I talked to some people in South Carolina last week on the staff. They were I think 13 points was huge for them against that defense. Huge. And regardless and they of held the stupid Van- decisions that Vanderbilt made. Well, yeah, Vanderbilt. Uh, yeah, speaking yeah. of overthinking. Yeah. I, I, I became more convinced than ever, by the way, that we needed a college football preseason um, because, number one, we're, we're apparently going to insist on wrecking week one by, by, not make, by making the fewest number of quarterback decisions possible, and we're just going to go mess around in the first week to where uh, nobody actually has any idea who their quarterback's going to be. Um, that could be taken care of with like, a, with, a, with like a late August game against an FCS preseason opponent. I think that'd be fantastic because it just makes the actual season more watchable. Vanderbilt had no idea what it wanted to do, um, but South Carolina still holding anybody to 13 points for South Carolina is good after the last couple of years. But regardless, okay, so that's a watch. So Tennessee, bad. Missouri, you know, I that I, I I still don't really know what to think of Missouri. The bottom line is, that, I mean, they underachieved the spread by basically like four and a half points. That's that's within range. They had the same number of scoring opportunities as West Virginia. I'm going to say that they basically met, roughly met the expectation. Uh, that's not saying anything good, but it's not bad either, I guess. Alabama exceeded, somehow managed to be number one and exceed expectations. Cl- Auburn exceeded expectations. LSU bombed. Uh, so that's that's what, like two, two, and one, I guess. A&M met expectations, that's three. Georgia met expectations, that's four. And in either of those, you could make a case that they exceeded two. Florida Florida was Florida. I don't really know. I didn't get a single thing. I was watching a good portion of that game, and they were in, kind of intentionally trying not to give anything away, uh, trying to a, be – Yeah, I didn't see a second of that game. Very confused as to what they are. Don't – Right. I, really, I don't know. Right. I was hoping to get some answers, uh, and I, I got none. And Luke Del Rio was okay. The running game was okay. Like, I, I really – I'm going to punt on that one because I don't know. If anything, it was disappointing. But it was – I mean, marginal, whatever. Mississippi State underachieved. Arkansas, I didn't expect much out of them in September because they got a brand-new quarterback running back and, and offensive line. They underachieved a little bit, but they won. And, um, you know, I, I – that, that was a marginal disappointment. Kentucky did exactly what I expected of Kentucky. The, actually, the part that I didn't expect was them going up big in the first half. Um, but, I, you know, we were talking about this last week. Like, they were projected to lose that game, and they did. Um, so that was kind of a wash, and Ole Miss did about what I expected. So LSU bombed. Tennessee won but bombed. Arkansas is a little disappointing. Mississippi State, like I said, fell asleep a little disappointing. Yeah. Only two bombs here and a couple teams overachieved. Like, that's... That's not good. They, you yeah. know, they could have expected more, but yeah, the, it was not the worst week in the, hit, in the history of the conference by any means. Mississippi State lost its best player in probably program history. Well, and they, they again, freaking overthinking. They start Nick Fitzgerald. He has two uh, mediocre drives. Uh, they bring in a backup. He's doing well, and then Fitzgerald sits the bench and doesn't come in until the end of the game again. Like I, I don't know why coaches are going out of their way not to commit or figure out a quarterback situation. Uh, but it doesn't do them any favors. It didn't do Mississippi State any favors. It didn't do Auburn any favors. Certainly didn't do Notre Dame any favors. Like the only teams it really worked for were Alabama, which I mean, kind of did the same thing. Like Barnett has a couple of okay series, um, freezes up a couple of times. Hertz comes in, does well on his second possession or third or something like that. And and but that was that was weird. Just like Mississippi State was weird. They got away with it because they're freaking Alabama. But. Um, there are a lot of comments in the uh, halftime of Ole Miss Florida State. Uh, 
Chad Kelly is the best quarterback in the SEC, and he's also the second and third, obviously hyperbole in that moment. But then based on what happens in the third quarter, it makes you – it's funny that no one's tied quarterback play directly into a bad weekend, and that's where I think a lot of this starts and ends. Well, Kelly, I mean, I didn't have much of a problem with what he did in the second half. He got nothing. You know, suddenly he was – uh, getting sacked on every other. Like, no, every I thought I thought he acquitted himself well, and I, I don't really think any of the, the turnovers were glaring. He he did for, he forces the situation, which is just kind of how he plays football. But right. um, and I'm not trying to excuse away the turnovers, but some of them, eh, whatever. Um, well, I mean, that, the one to Ingram bounced right off Ingram's hands. So yeah, the first um, one in the first half was terrible, but the the Ingram one was not his fault at all. This is not a quarter, this is not a conference that's deep with quarterback play right now. Kind of that simple. I mean, all right. We beat this to death, Bill. Um, it, it's tough to it's tough to argue this because I see I, I see the the inspiration for the the criticism, even though the criticism is oh yeah, really, yeah they deserve really it wrong, but they they totally deserve it because they they push the opposite narrative so much. So uh, everybody take their shots because it's fun and they deserve it. But my my advice to the SEC, which they'll never take because it doesn't fit any kind of their marketing ethos, would, would be to to kind of brand yourself as the as the the, the genteel southerner who who is well aware of it, uh, of their wealth, um, instead of the you know cul de sac lotto redneck that you are, um, because hey. that's that's how you, you've acquitted yourself. And now, anytime any SEC team loses, it, it, it just becomes a, you know, a, a rain shower of bad take. And the SEC participates in those takes. They freak out. They get ma- they are, It is a massively insecure. I still remember back in, um, is either 2012 or 13, Gary Danielson said something that, I mean, he was projecting from what he had heard. So it, it's stupid, but it wasn't Gary being stupid. It was him passing something stupid along. Um, he basically said that like A&M's success in, I think it was because of A&M, but it might have been because of Missouri in 2013. Basically that you know, A&M and Missouri both being able to see success so quickly actually made the conference worse because it proved that the conference wasn't as good as it, it, it wasn't, that A&M and Missouri were able to make the conference better and succeed within the conference was proof that they weren't already a perfect conference or something like that. Like it made people insecure that A&M and Missouri were able to come in and win games. Okay. That's insane. That is so ridiculous and insecure and, and petty and everything else. Um, but that's, I mean, that's again, that's what they are. They're happy. There is no such thing as a perfect conference, but I know this and we'll move on. If Purdue loses to Cincinnati this weekend and Pittsburgh beats Penn state, I don't think any Ohio State or Michigan fans will be getting into it with, um, you know, critics from outside of their region no. on Twitter. It's just not going to happen. But there's Alabama fans fighting about Kentucky losing to Southern. Right. I mean, my God. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Again, you bring it on yourself. That like yeah. that's I'm not gonna I'm not gonna worry about it too much because they deserve it. Bill, we have some questions. You want to answer some questions? Sure. I'm gonna sneeze first. You can keep it in the show. Ready? <laughs> yeah. This. This podcast, oh, by the way, no is way. Bro- it was one of those. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're That's both fighting awesome. ragweed in our uh, respective cities right now. So uh, both of us have a, a certain gravelly, nasally wit about yeah, it. Yeah, it's like we were doing this on Saturday night after yeah. after games. Um, um, okay, uh, Brandon Hathaway. Hey, guys, I had a question I thought y'all could answer that was longer than a tweet could handle. After watching the games this weekend, but the Texas game in particular, it made me wonder what really happens when there's an offensive overhaul to make it work. I'm a Clemson fan, so I've lived through one recently, and the play-calling philosophy was sort of visible, but that seems like the smallest piece of it. 
I mean, if Kurt Ferentz called four verticals, the receivers would obviously know what to do, but there's a reason why that's not really attached to his offensive philosophy. Uh, but specifically in situations like Texas's or Clemson's, when Chad Morris joined the staff, there isn't time for the recruiting philosophy to change enough to make a huge difference. So can y'all shed some light on practice, film, study, or whatever to make those play-calling changes successful? Thanks, and of course I enjoy the podcast as soon as I discovered it. Keep up the good work, Brandon, at Engineer Cited. Um, you go first? Yeah, uh, teaching. I mean, that's, I think, the most underrated aspect of it is, I mean, yeah, you have your call, your plays to call, and you've got your system that you want to run, but you have 20, you know, <clears throat> approximately 20 hours a week to teach them how, and a certain number of practices in the spring and a certain number of practices in August to be able to teach them what you want them to do and why and what, you know, why you're doing it and how you're going to gain yards on third and four, what your philosophy is. Uh, and I think, you know, there are guys who are just, well, A, it's always going to depend on personnel too. Like not necessarily what you've been taught to do, but how receptive you are to these changes. But then I, I do think that, that that aspect of teaching that, that is another way of getting an advantage. Like, um, I mean, Sterling Gilbert, obviously, that t- that offense that took the field, even if they weren't – I mean, they had like a 15-minute drought of, for first downs and everything. They, they had their issues here and there. But they were – right out of the gates, they were confident. They all knew what their role was and, and what they how they needed to, to rush to the line of scrimmage right off the bat. Uh, they looked prepared to run tempo. So it's, it's one thing to just say, hey, run in the line. We got another play to call. But you have to, like, that, that mentality, they, they all knew what their role was. And I think that was the biggest thing. And honestly, I mean, Missouri ran 100 damn plays against West Virginia the other day, and they didn't, for all the issues they had, it was mostly because they couldn't open any running holes. Uh, and, and, you know, their their receivers weren't, weren't as good as West Virginia's cornerbacks. But the, the pace part of it, they, it seemed natural. Nobody, there weren't just a ton of false starts. Everybody kind of knew what they were doing. And that's not a given. And I think, you know, that shows there's an aspect of teaching that goes into being an offensive coordinator or, or just an offensive assistant at all. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest part of that. Flexibility is my answer. And also, as Bill said, teaching, I also think it is learning and that finding guys uh, to come in and install new systems most head coaches are, are on a tight te- – usually when you're coming in to install a new system, there's a reason why. Right, they don't yeah. just do this. They don't just do this for fun. Um, and so there's usually an accelerated timeline. So you're finding someone who isn't necessarily adherent to his own book, but someone who can take portions of his book and apply it to the talent that he has, the talent that he can get maybe in a year's time, and then what this team will look like in two to three seasons. And those are all going to be very vastly different offenses, even though they run similar plays. Uh, I talked to Morris when he was in his last year with Taj Boyd, someone who had devoured the book and someone who were, who had enough talent around him to where Clemson was – they had a, a versatile multitude of, of options and things that they could do and, and different kind of systems within systems that they could play with. Then you go and you look at someone like – I talked to Sterling Gilbert really briefly at the Texas Media Day back in July, and he's going for a much more limited structure. Now, when you have people who are adherent to systems, and this usually happens maybe more in the option world, where certain things have to happen, certain fundamentals have to be achieved, that takes more time. So the, probably the secret to success is having a coordinator who's going to come in, immediately know which parts of a system to apply, and kind of learn right. from the talent available. Um, I think it's overrated to say, we got a blank style guy, and he is going to come in and install this, when really if you have a 
you know, if you have a traditional six foot two lead footed pocket passer and you're coming in with a, with a particular style or system, you know, if you if your system demands that the pocket moves every down, then you're gonna have a problem with that. Um, you know, Penn State's a good example, and that you know, it'd be curious to see what Joe Moorhead would have done differently with Christian Hackenberg, who was in a system that asked him to run, and he basically said no. So, uh, you know, it, it comes down to fit and timeline and culture. So I would say a certain flexibility is the secret to success there. Um, next question um, uh, from Rob Sealheimer. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Dear Bill and Steven, I'm a big fan. Thank you. Um, that was our thank you. And I listen every week. I love the combination of Bill's deep statistical knowledge of college football <laughs> and Steven's excellent journalistic skills and sources. Well, push on the ladder. Uh, my question is regarding the recent story about Colin Kaepernick. Is that something college football coaches will address with their players? If so, what do they say? I know Jim Harbaugh made a public statement that he later walked back, but I'm also reminded of Gary Pinkle's support for the Missouri players who went on strike in support of the protest group Concerned Student 1950. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. Sincerely, Rob Selheimer. Um, yes, they've already talked about it. Um, some of the better SIDs in the country saw that coming and addressed it with their coaches that they would be asked about it. Um, the difference is that the player agency is such that in college football you can be told to do something, and if you speak out, if you were to embrace what Kaepernick is advocating for, or the beliefs that he has, if you share those and then act upon that in a similar fashion, you could be punished for it at certain universities. So, uh, Or I say certain. I mean, I shouldn't kid myself. I would say almost everyone, honestly. Um, I would be... If, if it would be a much easier task to compile a list of schools that would allow for that kind of behavior and support the player culture than it would be to find schools where that would punish them because that's almost all of them. And that's just the cruel reality of college sports. Um, I, It's a delicate subject, and it's a very strange one in, the, in that you are in a bubble in recruiting now and that you want to display a certain kind of flexibility and a certain kind of um, compassion for the student athlete and then at the same time you know the, the restrictions have never been greater on their expression so it's a delicate line for coaches to walk and I can guarantee you that none of them really want to answer that question right none of them really have a good answer they're just gonna you know well they're gonna go with their gut and find out if they're wrong I guess but uh no I mean I guarantee a lot of you know I, I there's so many ways to bring it up. Like, it's one thing to say, yeah, we brought it up. We talked to our team about it. But is this like, hey, you're not going to do this? Is it, I'm going to give the players the floor so they can express you know, their thoughts on the matter? Um, I, I would guarantee that there's been a large range, uh, maybe depending on the, on the, the, the team leadership or whatever. I, I'm, it would be very interesting to, to kind of survey how coaches decided to bring it up. Because you, you do figure a lot of them have. Um, I, and, uh, I would assume yeah. it's come up in casual conversation during summer camp. Um, I can't remember exactly when that happened relative to most people's practice schedules, but it's relatively, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would say most were in fall camp, yeah. Yeah, and so and usually early on in fall camp, some coaches do it in the middle to break up the fatigue. They'll go through a lot of seminars and and kind of non football things like player conduct and you know academic stuff. And here's what to do if you're in a bad situation with drugs, girl, car, whatever kind of. They'll, they 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 do drill on all that stuff in the in the in the camp window. Some coaches do it at different times. If it came up at all, it probably came up then. Um, this is an older question, but I, um, it's one that um, I think we should answer. 
Cade Massey writes in, loved the bit last week, and this is from August 23rd, loved the bit last week about Bill Power ranking the teams without looking at the S&P Plus numbers and then comparing the two. Curious what you consider to be the optimal blend. How do you think about when it's okay or even good to deviate from the model? You guys are the best, although I'm mad at Godfrey for fanning my Longhorn optimism with his Benveniti locker room stories. That's from my Charlie Strong story. Cade, you're welcome, because I was right. Yeah. Um, uh, my quick answer is that I don't pay attention to almost any of this stuff. I asked Bill for situation-related statistics and, or to identify trends as a reporter. For instance, when I was doing the Army thing I talked about, I would also uh, when I go into a situation like that, essentially blind or starting from scratch, I always approach Bill. But it's not necessarily to see how a team is ranked relative to any to, to the landscape. I start looking at that kind of stuff probably in the second week of October when resumes are built based on that season's play, and then we then I'll I'll start embracing larger ideas. Bill, this is more question for you. What what is do you? I don't think you have an optimal plan. I, I know you well enough to know that you're always experimenting. Yeah, I mean the I mean the first part of this is you know what I always say, uh, you know when randomly like a reporter or somebody will want to talk to me about, you know, what are your thoughts on stats in the future of the, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, one of the first things I always make sure to say is that I always look at stats as the start of the conversation and not the end. Um, and I think that's where we get off a lot because a lot of people will, a lot of, well, a few pro stats people, but a lot of anti stats people will, will see a, a list of rankings and think, oh, you really think that, huh? Like, no, no, I don't. That's not me. That's not like, um, I got that a lot yesterday. Oh, you really think Florida State's not as good as LSU? Or you really think Houston's not a top 10 team? Or they're like, no, that's not what I'm, that's not, that's not my thoughts right there. Um, but I do think it, it allows you're you to. You're yelling frame. at a robot that doesn't exist. <laughs> I, I think the stats allow us to frame. Uh, are you know better thoughts that's a terrible way of putting it but i think i think you know what i mean like uh being able to look at that and then basically like um okay well houston as an example part of the reason they were as low as they were in the rankings was because they kind of stunk when greg ward was hurt um and so that bumped them down a little bit and in a perfect world i would be able to kind of you know apply point values to injuries and all these other things that would allow us to basically say yeah but with greg ward in there they're really the number x team in the country uh they still wouldn't have ranked as high as a lot of people wanted but they were still a better clearly better team when ward was healthy so you know being able to add that i know that that's what handicappers will do they'll kind of start with a general framework for for ratings and they'll adjust based on you know yeah but this defense was inflated because they didn't face this quarterback and and all of those things that's kind of i mean i like starting with the numbers and basically saying yeah but on top of it uh obviously that's not an optimal optimal blend but that is i I think there are legitimate things that my numbers and no other numbers are going to be able to catch uh in terms of just Here's last week's stats. Stick them in the blender. Here are your rankings. There's always context that that's going to miss. I, but it's a, I still think of the, by far the most sound place to start. It's, it's all okay. It's all okay right now. Um, <laughs> it's, it's okay to say that it's okay now because the playoff is very flawed, not perfect, but much better than the previous system. And that even if you are unranked right now and you are Texas, you can make the playoff. Everything's going to be okay. Stanford lost to Northwestern to start last year. Yeah. Uh, and, and not only did they lose, they looked like the Stanford team from the year before that couldn't finish drives and, and couldn't take advantage of opportunities um, to the point where I was like, well, I, I guess we know about Stanford. <laughs> I kind of I, I kind of did the thing I advise against doing. Uh, like the very next week, they started looking like Stanford. 
Um, Bill, real quick they, before we before we break down our um, our box score of the week, who is the Stanford this week from week one? Who is the team that we we are way way too overcommitted to their week one performance about? Um, hmm, that's a good question. My my first initial response was going to be Texas, but um, I kind of feel like it's Oklahoma. I feel like that's the safest bet. Maybe to actually maybe Tennessee. The thing about the Tennessee game was that um, I, I I was massively encouraged by the fact that they actually went deep in the second half. Like they didn't have like the line was terrible enough that they didn't have time to do it again, even if they wanted to. Uh, but that was them. Like that was a holy crap moment. Like oh, Mike DeBoard realizes that stretching the field is a, a thing that can actually help you uh, because they just weren't doing it and. Um, they they did and it worked and it helped them back into the game. That doesn't solve their offensive line issues. I and that was something like dramatic that I didn't really expect Appalachian State to be able to control the line of scrimmage the way they did on offense or defense. Um, but I was the the simple fact that Tennessee maybe saw that it's okay to stretch the playbook in the field a little bit. Maybe saw figured out a couple things about actually winning close games against a you know. When when you're when the fans around you have clammed up a good amount, and so has your and you know a lot of your offense, that might be a situation where they can kind of take take something from that and build it into being the good team that they were supposed to be. That's well, there are some ifs there. I don't. I feel like amazingly confident in saying that, but I'm not going to write off Tennessee yet. What if it's LSU? Also possible. I mean, that's something that the numbers, you know, there's a reason why, like, it's almost like 90% weight for the projections right now in my numbers, because we just don't know anywhere near what we need to know yet. And, you know, LSU might have just had a situation where they started the first game slowly, because, I mean, they did. That, that, that first half was lifeless on exactly offense. exactly what happened. And I know it's not a one-to-one comparison, but that's very much the situation that Stanford found itself in yeah. last year. On the yeah. road, out of sorts. Not really, not really consistent in in what they were doing in terms of, of the play calls. I, again, I, I don't want to make a huge sum, summary because that was a game I saw probably half the plays for. Um, I really, by the way, I really did try to get more absorbed more because I was embedded with. Well, I can't really say exactly what I was doing, but I wasn't where I was having to like crunch just Houston, Oklahoma. So I got to see more football than I normally would on the road. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it's LSU. Maybe I can't even ask that question yet. Maybe we we'll go back and we'll, well, right. I mean, ask you in week three. It, right. It's it's any team where we have over you know where, where we think we have learned something definitive. Tap the brakes on that because we haven't. I will say this: circumstances circumstances around the coaches that lost in week one. Um, everybody wants to make a joke about Butch Jones. They won the game. They're headed into Bristol. They win that game. They're fine. So the circumstances around him are really unchanged. And this idea that if they were to finish second in the SEC East and that he would be fired is ludicrous. That's not going to happen. They have a leadership vacuum right there and some financial concerns. The, right. The Any real, reason for him to be real, fired has to do with off the field stuff. Like yes. on the field, they still, they've improved like by two wins a game each of yeah, the last year two over years. Year. The real circumstantial change for someone based solely off of week one is Les Miles. It is LSU. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. For a fact. Um, you know, in talking with people there, it's, it has just validated, 110% validated one side of the argument going into that last week against Texas A&M last season. So, um, okay, moving on. Um, let's do box score. Um, gosh, we have. I feel like we can only touch on so much. I, I also... I feel remiss in not talking about Wisconsin in terms of the winner of that game. Yeah. Um, there are so many other things I want to get to. We didn't even touch on 
really any G5. Oh, actually, this actually will, will we, there's going to be a little bit of an announcement here moving forward. Oh, yeah, uh, we, we can talk way, about that. Yeah, one way that we're going to be able to touch on more is uh, by recording a relatively quick show on Sunday nights. So here's so, the deal. Uh, yeah. Here's the deal, friends. We hit you up last week, and a lot of people have been very generous for our Democracy Prep Relief campaign, and that's to go towards a charter school that was flooded in Baton Rouge recently. That's going to be our initiative for the football season, okay? We have crested over 1000 bucks. The goal is 10 We're going to push all season. Um, and I made a joke last week, hey, if you like this podcast, you probably like it enough to give five bucks. Those of you who have, who have decided to give, I've given way more than five bucks on average. I think the average gift right now is like somewhere in the high teens, almost $20 to give you perspective. So for that, I thank you. For the rest, I will browbeat and, and Catholic slash Baptist guilt your ass into the Stone Age until you give me some money. Um, we are going to hit this $10,000 goal. I'm going to attach some probably stupid talk radio, sports talk radio stunt to it, in which I have to dress up like a Saints fan, which is a whole other thing. Um, but, again, if you like our show, we are now going to bring it to you on Sundays as well, which probably actually means Monday for those of you in the iTunes world. Um, but it's designed specifically to kind of digest what just happened so that our normal show, which usually airs mainly Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays if I'm on the road, um, will be more forward-facing. Uh, we'll talk about what's going to happen versus what happened. And so we're going to use that Sunday night uh, mainly because we have a super cool advantage, and that's that Bill is the inventor of the S&P Plus system, and we're going to look at what those numbers say to us in addition to our just normal human reactions to Saturday's games. Yep. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, everything he Also, just... uh, we, we do need to have one caveat. Uh, we, we won't be going 90 minutes on Sunday. So it's going to be a tight, uh, uh, newsy brief of what happened. Uh, a nice little after-dinner mint for your weekend as you slog into work on Monday. Um, and then we'll do the normal robust show midweek. But um, just our, our obligations being what they are, that might, that might, that might kill us. But, and, yeah, and Bill, Bill is also still the sole editor of the, of the actual audio show. So that's a lot to ask. And, and I go to bed at 9. So. Yes, yeah, but, we're, but we're you actually, get up at 2. So. We're, we're trying to figure out ways to make sure we cannot go over about 25 minutes. Um, I think we've got some good ones. So anyway. I, right. Yeah, I was, we may have to fit ourselves with shot collars the way we bounce around. All right, let's do a box score. Let's get out of here. So the blue team. All right, so, um, <laughs> so the blue team is about to fire their head football coach. Um, yeah, so we, we settled on um, – we settled on Kentucky and Southern Miss as our uh, the box score we want to examine. Bill, you're going to put this up on the post. So if you go to if you listen to us through an iTunes service or through a Stitcher or whatever, um, you can go to the actual post that we put up at podcasting. Uh, the I think if you search podcasting, play nobody SB Nation, you can find it. You'll you'll yeah. figure it out. I have faith in all of you. Or just like on our Twitter feed, there there will be a link to. Okay, right, Bill. So- I, I, real fast. This is the first time I'm looking at this box score. I saw probably one quarter's worth of plays from this game as I was um, with an interview subject while it was going on. And before you tell me what I should be looking at, I'm going to see what number pops at me the most. There, there are like 30 numbers that, that could pop out to here. Wow. This is good radio. I mean, I'm not supposed to say this, but I like a 40-minute time of possession for the winning team, Southern Miss, pops out at me. And here's why. I'm cheating. One thing I know about this game is that Kentucky basically just elected not to play offense in the second half. <laughs> so I know that that's why the time of possession. Which is isn't like, wise when your defense stinks, by the way. Um, this is not good. Um, Southern Miss, 
Five point. Yeah. All right. Here's one. I, let's start here, and it, you can. It, maybe I just explained it. Maybe you can explain it to me. Southern missed five point four yards per play. Okay. Yeah. Five hundred and twenty total yards. Kentucky had eight point two yards per play. Now the pro. Here's. I, I guess I answered my own question right here. Now is the number above that is that the USM ran ninety six plays. They almost ran a hundred plays, and Kentucky ran fifty. They yeah. almost ran two to one. I yeah, mean, if we don't talk about anything else in this entire box score build, that's sort of the answer as to why Southern Miss won the game. Yeah, like the second half was, I mean, yeah, it, uh, you, you, I, I just, it, it was amazing. So, okay, so starting the second half, let's not pay attention to the score just yet. Southern Miss comes out, 11 plays, 84 yards, touchdown. Kentucky, three plays, fumble. Uh, Southern Miss, eight plays, 66 yards, touchdown. Kentucky, three and out. Southern Miss, 10 plays, 57 yards, touchdown. Kentucky, two plays, interception. Southern Miss, 12 plays, 56 yards, field goal. Kentucky, five and out. They actually got a first down there. Um, Southern Miss, another 11-play drive and a field goal. Kentucky loses a fumble on the next play. Like, it, it was, they were allergic to the ball in the second half. It was, it was just staggering. Like, they didn't, they didn't fail enough to knock down their incredible, like, yards per play average from the first half. They were failing so quickly, they ended up with, Eight, 14 plays in the second half of the football game. I know this and, is going, Bill, I know this goes against everything, but under that, because we have the full box score here, we have what's called a book, by the way. If you're, if you're a reporter in the, in the um, press box after the game, they hand you every stat you could think of from the game stapled together because they still print things off because they're Luddites, but it's called <laughs> the book. And in the book, and again, I know we, this show tells you expressly not to look at possession time, but I just want to point out because I would well, even no, take I, this... To, I would take this to Jeff Munkin, who told me last week how overrated this stat was in person, that not only did they have the ball for 40 minutes and 32 seconds, Bill, they had the ball more each quarter as the game went on. What I mean by that is they had it for 8 minutes in the first, almost 10 minutes in the second, almost 11 minutes in the third, and almost 12 minutes in the fourth. <laughs> that is devastating. Yeah, I mean, so the reason we that uh, time of possession is overrated is because we use it for the wrong reasons. It's not okay. like a quality thing. I think that's where, you know, look at that time of possession. They dominated. Like, no, it's not that. But what it tells you is, um, well, I mean, it tells you exactly what we see here. Like, that, the, the combination of time of possession and just pure number of snaps tells you that Kentucky could not stay on the field or, or get Southern Miss off of it. And what we see when we look in there is exactly that. Like, they had 14 plays in the second half of the game. Meanwhile, uh, going back to the second quarter, uh, let's see, one, five of, of Southern Miss's last seven drives, not including the one where they killed the clock at the end, five of the last seven drives had at least 10 plays. And Kentucky had 14 in the second half. All so right. this is, whether this is a quality thing or whatever, it is absolutely uh, descriptive when it comes to describing what the hell happened in this game. All right, as your pad one learner here, how about I uh, tell me, tell, give me, grade the validity of this statement. Okay. You can, you can glean quality from a time of possession stat if it's accompanied by the fact that the team that won time of possession was six of six in red zone scoring chances. Because uh, doesn't that speak to, yes, they held onto the ball a long time, but also they made something out of holding onto the ball. Right. Yeah, I mean that they were, they were highly efficient when they went to the red zone. They right. If your time of possession is twenty minutes, um, because the other team is unleashing fourteen play drives and kicking field goals, uh, and or and or uh, you had the ball twenty minutes because you were just scoring too damn fast. You were you know you had a bunch of three play eighty yard drives. 
Okay, so so what I should say is that of that six and six, they were of the they were six and six in the red zone. Four of those were touchdowns. That's what I should have said. Well, and they had six red zone opportunities, and Kentucky only had three. That's another part of it, I would say. Okay. Um, but no, I mean this was just a spectacularly weird game. So at the end of it, um, Drew Barker, three hundred twenty-three yards and four touchdowns. Um, I think you can be encouraged by that if you're a Kentucky fan. He also got sacked four times through a terrible interception right in the middle of, I, you know, the bottom line for Kentucky here was they could not stem the tide. Um, once things started going poorly in the first half, they almost did not go poorly at all. Like they came out, went three and out on the first possession, drove inside the Southern Miss for, uh, 40 on the next possession and then turned the ball over on downs. Then they went touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. And they finished the, the second half with touchdown, touchdown. Like they, they, they're, explosive and interesting and they did a lot of things, but this is still, I don't know if you can qualify it as a young team. Barker's a sophomore, uh, but I mean, Stanley Boom Williams has been around forever. The receiving core is very experienced. Uh, but the bottom line was that when they needed to, when, when Southern Miss's own offense found, fell into a rhythm and the Kentucky defense needed help, uh, Kentucky was allergic to the ball. They fumbled it. They went three and out. They, uh, they threw an interception. They punted again. They fumbled again. Um, it was just a that it was just a massive crash and burn from the UK offense when they absolutely needed to hold onto the ball and help the defense out a little bit. Mm. Yeah, just... you, it's rare. Like I'm sure they exist. Um, it's rare that you're going to see one team with 96 snaps and one and the other with 50, because either because normally, I mean, a it's not like Kentucky was moving slowly to begin with. But, I mean, usually you won't see that large a disparity because, you know, the team that's moving fast is up so big that they eventually slow down or um, the team that is moving slowly is good enough at moving slowly and, and moving efficiently enough that, the other, that they prevent the other team from getting the snaps they want. Uh, so it's really hard to end up with a, basically a two-to-one ratio. Uh, another thing to point out here, um, Southern Miss re- fumbled twice and recovered both of them. Kentucky fumbled twice and Southern Miss return- recovered both of them. So uh, yeah, that didn't I, help. That'll, that'll that'll change circumstances. Um, the only thing I can add is off the press, uh, off the uh, off off the book, and that's that. Uh, yeah, the Shannon Dawson thing was very real. He was very happy and very comfortable on Dana Holgerson's staff at West Virginia. Was lured over to the SEC to to install and manage a, a, an offense over a series of years. He thought at Kentucky, um, Stoops probably made a knee, had a knee jerk reaction in firing him. Things just did not work out well, and they're they're you know. Yeah, there's acrimony on both sides, but to come back in like this, my word. Wow. Yeah, this is the vibe. It validates it, man. I'll put it that way. Yeah, the, uh, to use a very statistical term, the vibe isn't very good right now. No, I mean, this is, um, I would be, I'll tell you what, if, if, if there's a stereotype against Kentucky that their fans just aren't that invested in the, the, you know, the peculiarities and the particulars of football because they're the world's greatest basketball fans, that's good for Stoops right now because a Alabama fan base devouring some of these numbers would, I mean, it would be an instant lynch mob. Yeah, by the way, 57,000 in attendance for this game. Kentucky shows up for football. Um, like they are, I think, in terms of pure attendance, they are pretty underrated in what they can deliver. They, I mean, it's not 80,000 by any means, but considering the success they haven't had, uh, they, they get 55,000, 60,000 there. And, well, the problem uh, is, is that I think Commonwealth's capacity right now is closer to 70. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it could be better. But, I mean, that's, you know, for, for having collapsed each of the of, last two years. In terms of traveling, I would shave probably close to four, four maybe 5,000 off because Southern Miss is the rare CUSA that, like, travel. <laughs> yeah. uh, they have their own attendance issues, but that's just because the fan base is so much smaller. Um, 
See, I think it's funny that you would say that because I think there's a frustration growing with Kentucky that it isn't just a pure, like, like they can't just install the same level mania of, of basketball fans into the football stadium. They have to be... Well, what it is is a mirror of, like, having gone to Ole Miss, it's a mirror of what normally you have to deal with with basketball. It is a very wait-and-see attitude, and there's no natural affinity towards the sport itself. Well, right, and I'm just... What I'm saying is, like, Kansas... Even when they were good, they were drawing in the 40,000. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Kentucky, I think the baseline of attendance is higher than we maybe uh, suspect for the, for the reputation of being a basketball, uh, who cares about anything but basketball school. Um, but no, I mean, they, <laughs> I, I, I thought, like, I liked everything I saw and heard from Mark Stoops when he was hired. And obviously him making, I loved that he went into Ohio for recruiting. I thought that was like a, I think what I called it at the time, it was like it was a way for the SEC to improve instead of just being zero sum. Like like he's uh, like congr- like he's winning some recruiting battles in in Florida, and it's just taking you know those kids away from a different SEC school. Um, he he figured out a way to almost to improve the conference in a way by by pulling in four stars from from Ohio. Uh, I thought that was really impressively smart. I, I kind of liked his first round of hires. But, like, over the last couple of years, he's checked every bad box. His defense, he, he's a defensive coordinator. His defense stunk last year. And life, I think, like I've said before, the only time it didn't was when he had two good pass rushers and then they left. Um, his defense is, is very, very shaky. Uh, and then he just, like, if the off, uh, offensive coordinator comes in and it's not a, an immediate fix, he's gone. Like, this is his third offensive coordinator in three years, and that is very scary. Like, you know it just it's it's not looking good right now and and this was not a way to convince fans that it was starting to look good I mean, bottom line, East, I mean the sec east is gonna see some change this year all the jokes aside i mean i just i can't overemphasize well i didn't really even emphasize it that vanderbilt loss hurts that program yeah. well yeah i mean it's it's changing that you know vanderbilt's now kind of looking like they might make a change and Kentucky is more likely than they were before. I mean, South Carolina, Missouri aren't Georgia isn't Tennessee's probably not Florida's not. So what I mean by change is obviously Georgia and South Carolina are not in Missouri as well. But if South Carolina is able to be two wins better than we, we thought they were, which is basically meaning that they're going to go two and six instead of zero and eight, or if hell if South Carolina is able to win at Mississippi state this weekend, that's going to accelerate some plans there, and it's going to shift the dynamic. And it, it, there's going to be yet another reckoning at Vanderbilt and Kentucky specifically right. as to how how aggressive are we going to be in trying to keep pace in SEC football, where it just means more, Bill. <laughs> it just does. All right, we got to uh, get out of here. We, man, what a show. Uh, I feel like we didn't even touch so many other things. Um, there are so many other programs we want to get to. Hopefully Sunday's show is going to help alleviate some of these concerns. Uh, real fast, let's let's just do this. Anything underrated on Saturday? Because it looks like it's all underrated. But we've already touched on a few of these things. Is there anything you're looking for that you want to uh, leave our listeners with? Ah, uh, I really, I mean, uh, another cop out answer. I'm really curious about Arkansas TCU. That game That's really cool. like Penn State Pitt has a lot of plot lines. I'm I'm curious about that one too. But Arkansas and TCU are both teams I think could end up very good this year. Arkansas, like I said, I kind of expected them to start slowly. TCU, uh, you know, we'll see. But their defense was very disappointing against South Dakota State, at least. 
Um, so that one's kind of a, you know, what are you game? Like, are, are you really going to be, be like a top 15 team or do you just have, uh, you know, massive problems? TCU, if, if Arkansas, after scoring 21 points on Louisiana Tech, puts up like 42 against TCU, uh, then I'm going to start doing the thing I'm not supposed to do and reaching conclusions early in the year. I like um, some of the interest around Cincinnati and Purdue because it may, like I said, it may push for a coaching change early in the season. And also um, the the concept of auditioning right now is a very real thing for Big 12 candidates. So Cincinnati, oh, yeah. Cincinnati was able to hide on Thursday night against UT Martin. Um, this game's on the Big Ten Network. It's not marquee by any stretch, but it is a thin weekend. So this is this is sort of a, a must-win in realignment circles. Um, I, I don't really, I couldn't really stump for UCF and Michigan. I just, I mean, I think, oh, it's, I think if anything, that's the one you stay completely away from. And people are just trying to kind of prop up on a bad weekend because they do have an interesting new hire in Scott Frost. But I mean, come on folks. They're just, it's just not there yet. Um, there was one, let me dig into the evening schedule. It may stand out quietly. I mean, uh, actually, I think I was referencing Cal and San Diego State, which we've already talked about. So I would, I would earmark that one. Um, you know, sit back, have a beer, watch Arkansas State. Try, you know, try and test Auburn and make them figure out. Auburn's got to pick a quarterback. I mean, if anything, that's that that's that stands out the most to me this week. Is that Auburn yeah, has seems, to pick a quarterback? It seems like Malzahn kind of figured out. He's like, well, that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would assume. Because that really did seem like the game plan. Like, look, we're just going to be crazy. We're going to throw as many things as possible at Clemson and hope something works. Um, we were then, especially hard on Lovey Smith um, because I still think it was a PR hire. Yeah, hey, hey, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Well, okay, I was especially hard on <laughs> Illinois because it was, it was very much a weird NFL PR hire. Um, they're going to play a good team in North Carolina. I'll be interested to see what the, like, how, far, how far away are they. I think they're pretty far. Um, and we'll know pretty quick. So that's, that's one where you can check in. Watch it, probably figure it out pretty quick, get out of there. Um, and yeah. then, you know, then just maybe enjoy like a, a nice drunk meal and fall asleep to Texas Tech and Arizona State. Oh, uh, Wazoo and Boise. Okay, so this is actually backloaded with interest. Yeah, that one that one um, is probably less interesting than it was last week uh, because Washington State managed to do, you know, pull, to do double duty and lose to an FCS for the second straight year. But uh, Boise still has something to prove for sure. Oh, man. I just look at the schedule, Bill, and there's so much we haven't talked about. So we're going to try harder. We're going to do it better. Um, also, we're going to be back on Sunday. So hopefully you guys are, are into that. Um, we, as always, we appreciate your support. Um, we thank you for your time and listening. You can follow Mr. Bill Connolly on Twitter at SBN underscore Bill C and myself on Twitter and Instagram at 38Godfrey. Um, so be sure to subscribe and review. Um, we're really low on iTunes reviews, so get off your ass and also give us some money. Um, you can check us out, iTunes, SoundCloud, all that stuff. Uh, if it's only going to be one or the other, though, give donate. Give us the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us the money for sure. Yeah. Um, it's just fun. Yeah. And by the way, uh, we are I, – I, we said this last week. We've got music and logos and stuff in the works. But I just wanted to point out we're starting to chart now on iTunes, which is really weird and not supposed to happen. This was supposed to be the niche of niche of niches. Um, in terms of our audience, that was kind of how we conceived it, and we were comfortable with that, and we were going to be the indie rock record. Um, but it's turning into something a little bit more, and uh, I know Bill and I are fiercely proud of that. And so um, it's okay to want to obsess over college football and not be an idiot. I think that's, you know, not to be too highfalutin, because the idiots that shut down Fullcast do a fine job of being idiots. But 
Um, I think it's awesome that we get to add this flavor. So thank y'all for listening. Uh, Bill, you want to do this again on Sunday? Uh, as long as it doesn't keep me up too late. Yeah, Sunday night. <laughs>